Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Hello, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Naomi Fisher. And Naomi joined us a few months ago for a very interesting podcast about screen use and just general tech use in the homeschooling community, but also amongst home educators and amongst just children and teenagers and people actually in general. Mm-hmm. So it's very lovely to have Naomi back with us. And today we are going to be discussing the perhaps rising levels of anxiety in young people and home educated young people. And also, to a degree, anxiety that's brought on by negative school experiences and just, you know, some of the pressures of being a young person today. So I think this is a topic that's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. So firstly, hello, Naomi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Um, And do tell us a little bit about yourself for anyone who hasn't heard the first podcast and miraculously doesn't know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So my name is Dr. Naomi Fisher. I am a clinical psychologist. And I have two children who are now 11 and 14, and they've never been to conventional school. So they were home educated. They still are officially home educated, but they now go to a part-time learning community. Um, And I wrote a book called Changing Our Minds, which is about self-directed education and really the psychology of self-directed education. Because what I'm really interested in is bringing together my psychological background and my psychological training and insights with what I see happening in unschooling, home education, the home ed community in general. Um, And because I think that a lot of what happens at school doesn't really necessarily make any psychological sense. And that if we were thinking psychologically, we would plan our education system quite differently. Do you think that there's something inherent in the education system in this country that almost provokes anxiety? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, I think it's more than that. I think the education system uses anxiety to in order to try and motivate young people. So I think that in fact, I think and I think lots of parents do this as well. I think we have a particular view of childhood in our in them in the UK. Well, I don't know actually if it might I just would say England because I don't know whether it's the same everywhere. Um but basically we think that children need to kind of be pushed through things. They need to kind of be chivied through childhood. We need to make them get on to the next stage as otherwise they might not, you know, they might, I don't know what we're, what that we want them to be sleeping on their own when they're not quite ready to do that. Or we want them to be, you know, using the toilet when they're not quite ready to do that. We're often kind of, how do we push them through to the next stage? And I think that particularly happens when children go to school. And I think that, Unfortunately, when, so when children go to school, one of the things that happens is that there's a shift from the child learning because they're internally motivated. You know, young children, they all learn because they want to learn. They are all desperate to interact with the world, you know, at whatever level they're doing that. They're all doing that in some way. And then when we get them into school, suddenly the, the idea of a school is that the school is going decide what that child should learn so up to that point when the child goes into school the ch- child has been deciding what they're going to learn school comes along and they says now we what we want you to do is we want you to learn how to read for example so they'll and the children who are coming in they're four or five some of them will be motivated by reading will be wanting to read others would just not have been thinking about reading yet because it just doesn't have to be part of a happy four or five year old life 
You know, one can live a good four or five year old life without being able to read. Um, so school has this problem of how do we get these children to learn things that the children don't necessarily see the point in. And one of the ways they do that, unfortunately, is through anxiety. So they'll say to children things like, you know, you need to learn these things because if you don't do this, you will never do get a good job. Or you need to do this because if you don't, you will get in trouble. And actually, although we don't think about it that way, what we're doing all the time is introducing anxiety. Of if you do not do what I want you to do, something is going to happen to you that you're not going to like. So it, it, it's actually intentional anxiety. And if you think of a lot of, say, the behavioural systems that schools use as well, where they put children's names up on the walls. You know, I hear a lot about clouds and rain clouds where children, if they behave badly, they're on the rain cloud. And when they're behaving what the teacher wants, they're on the sun and the rainbow. It's all anxiety provoking. And in fact, when I say this to teachers, they're, they're often like, no, 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 it's not. But if you ask the children and if you ask their parents, the children will say, yes, I'm worried about not being on the sun anymore. I'm worried that maybe this day I'm not going to be, you know, something's going to go wrong and we won't get our whole class award for having been well behaved all day. So schools are actually deliberately bringing in anxiety all the time. And then when the children are anxious, <laughs> we're turning around and going, well, the children shouldn't be anxious. There shouldn't be any problem with this. So I think there's a there's a real mismatch between deliberately using anxiety and then being surprised when the effects of that is that children are anxious. Do you think this occurs at all ages in the school system? Because I, I read a rather beautiful description of a primary school, well, a kindergarten actually, in a book I'm reading. And, and the author said that when they were in the primary school, it was as if if they looked outside the building, it would have been countryside and butterflies and sort of lambs frolicking around. In actual fact, they're on a kind of residential street. And then when they yeah. moved to the big school or the boys or an older yeah. school, they felt that it, it had a kind of resonant echo of noises that they could no longer hear and the darkness mm. and a sense of claustrophobia when actually it, they were in the same environment. It was just a different sense. And I wonder whether you feel that maybe this fear-based, this kind of anxiety-based motivator comes in when they're a little bit older, or is it inherent really in, in the whole exercise of sending your children off somewhere else? Ooh, well, I think that varies from child to child, because I think for some children, just going into that nursery environment is highly anxiety-provoking, because they're surrounded with children, there's much louder, noisier, smellier, there's all these things that make it harder for some children other children that isn't the case they feel they feel okay and it's just you know it varies from child to child but I think I think there's always unfortunately the use of anxiety for those who find it hardest so the way that often schools work is that if you're not doing what you're meant to be doing then you will in some way be punished whether that's because of disapproval or whether that's by your parent being told or, you know, a letter going home, whether it's sort of more, whether it's more explicit punishment, like you go sent to see the head teacher or you're sitting outside the head teacher's office or you're even in isolation or, you know, there's a whole set of graded punishments that schools use. And unfortunately, the children who find it hardest to comply are the ones who receive most of those punishments. 
because the model, the framework that schools are thinking from is we'll do this to these children and they will change their behavior as a result. You know, if the child's thinking, I don't want to be sent to the head teacher, therefore I'm going to stop doing this behavior. That's what school is hoping is going to happen. But actually, if we're thinking about behavior as something which is there because the child is struggling, the threat or the fear of being sent to the head teacher isn't going to stop that child struggling. All it might do is it might sort of get them afraid enough to not really show that they're struggling in some cases, but it can't change the fact they're struggling because it doesn't address that. It's not looking at the cause. It's only looking at this threat of what will happen if you don't comply. So I think there are different stages. So I think children find it difficult at different stages, but I think there are particular stages in school system which are anxiety provoking. And it's really well known among psychologists that there are particular times that we see children. And there's basically the transition from nursery reception to year one is one which lots of children find hard. So that's when they're five or six. Then there's the transition to secondary school, which for lots of children, many parents tell me it's like it's like coming off a cliff edge. And I think that's because you're leaving a often relatively nurturing, smaller environment where people knew your name and knew your face and you were with one teacher for the whole year there might have been you know you'll, you'll there'll be the other teachers that you knew you, you'll probably know everybody in your class you move to secondary school and suddenly there's no emotional support really available you're expected to move from class to class every lesson the teacher may well not be able to remember the whole class because they're seeing a whole different class of children every lesson and it's all about remembering your homework and your textbooks and your PE kit. And, you know, there's an enormous load on young people when they make that transition from primary to secondary, which I think provokes huge anxiety. And at the same time, the consequences usually go up as well. So they, the consequences feel scarier at secondary school. So everything takes that big leap up in terms of provoke the things that provoke anxiety, but also the things that schools are actually doing, which they think is behavioural management, but for lots of people it's more like anxiety provocation rather than behavioural management. And then, of course, the, just to keep going, there's even the, there's, then, then when they get to 14 and plus, there's the exams and there's a very constant, our education system is very exam heavy in the that sort of last few years. It's like 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 I think really young people's time and mental energy can be dominated by worrying about exams from the age of about 13 onwards, which I think is just awful. It's a, such a sad thing about what we're doing to our adolescents that we, we're not just giving them these exams to do, but we're telling them often that these exams are absolutely the most important thing you're ever going to do. If you screw up these exams, you will never, you know, I've had, I've had young people tell me that, they think that if they fail their GCSEs, they'll end up under a bridge because people, that's what they've been told. And I've had other young people say, you know, we, we started, it was the beginning of term in year 10 and we had a year assembly and the head of year came in and said, failure is not an option here. You're all going to succeed. And they're like, you know, but that's terrifying, actually, because some young people are going to fail their GCSEs. That is just a fact of life. Some people are going to fail. And and some of those young people know that they're going to fail because they can already see that they're going to really struggle. And if the only message we're giving them is you must pass, you must succeed, failure isn't an option, for many of them, that, that's just a very, very anxiety-provoking message. If you see anxiety as a kind of res 
a reaction to a trickle down anxiety through the school. So obviously the mm. school, the teachers are under pressure from the principal, the principal's under pressure from yeah. the local authority or whoever, the education board or whatever, governors. Yeah. And, and then that obviously eventually goes right up to the top. Is yeah. there an element which says, well, intrinsically within this system, there is going to be accountability and there's going to be quantifying of, of things and quantifying of data, because mm. otherwise, how will we know if anything is working, theoretically? So is there an, an element of inevitability about anxiety? Because everybody's anxious, the teachers are anxious, <laughs> their principals are anxious. Is it just a part of life that that is going to trickle down to the children? We've got an anxiety soap system, haven't we, at the moment? I mean, I think we've got Ofsted provokes massive anxiety on the part of teachers and schools um and I, I don't think it has to be like this I think we built this very competitive system for ourselves education wise and I don't know why I don't I don't think it makes logically any sense that our education system should be competitive that we're constantly ranking everybody against each other you know we're ranking schools against each other we're ranking young people against each other at every level, we're testing young people and ranking them against each other. And I that obviously provokes a lot of anxiety, but also it has other consequences, which I don't think we recognise. So when we're talking about accountability and data and looking at schools, we're almost always talking about test results. That's what accountability really means. It means, are they getting good scores in the tests? which is such a narrow way of viewing childhood and also so limited because if you think about it, you know, I don't, I don't, we have this very rigid way in the, in the UK where we put people in year groups and we say, you've all got to do this exam at this year group. You know, you're all 16 now, GCSEs, you've all got to do GCSEs now. There's no real reason why that would have to be the case. There's no, it's an arbitrary thing. You know, you can do GCSEs when you're 17 18 you can do them when you're 14 you can do them when you're 25 if you want to I don't see why we create these kind of artificial competitive cliff edges almost where everybody's sort of heading for this age and it's like this is your one moment I really I would like to see the system much more say like the driving test where you know the driving test I've done my I've failed my driving test three times and driving tests do provoke a certain amount of anxiety you're in a driving test, you have to reach a certain level of competence. And, you know, everybody can see why it's important for you to be able to be a competent driver before they let you out on the roads by yourself. So there's there's no dropping of standards or anything in the driving test. But the way we approach the driving test is not one where we're saying this has any kind of, this isn't, we don't have any problem with people repeating their driving test. We don't say to them, if you fail your driving test, that will be it. You will never be a good driver. We don't say to people, you've got to do your driving test when you're 16, along with everybody else, and we're going to rank you all and decide who's the best drivers and who's the worst drivers. And you will kind of carry that with you for the rest of your life. You know, you will always think of yourself as a best driver because you've got an A in your driving test, whereas this person over here who got a D, they're always going to think of themselves as a bit of a driving failure, even if later in life, they pass and they, you know what I mean? I think, got, I don't think we have to buy into that system for schools and I wish we weren't buying into it because say, you know, so I failed my driving test three times. I think I'm a good driver now. I don't have any, I was anxious at the time about it because I wanted to pass, but it wasn't that there's, there wasn't this kind of obsession with 
getting the right the, the results now is the only thing and I don't think education has to be like that and I don't see why we've done that to our young people is there an argument that says that obviously they're at school for a huge amount of time so, you mm-hmm. know like not only many years but many hours of the day many days yeah. of the year and is there yeah. an argument that says that school in effect is their preparation for life and I hear this mm-hmm. argument a lot from actually fathers and, and men generally yeah that, that that this competitiveness, this ranking people against each other, yeah. is an essential preparation for what mm-hmm. is a competitive dog-eat-dog world. Yeah. Strangely, I've never experienced a world like this, but yeah. a lot of men, a lot of men use this argument, I've noticed, a lot of fathers in particular. And they say, yeah. look, school prepares your child for the reality of a competitive world and a world where they will be tested and ranked against each other and they will fail things and they will pass things. Yeah. Is there is there, and I'm going to bring in the dirty word resilience, is uh, there a yeah. sense that actually school is providing a service of 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 saying you need to be resilient to some of these challenges? And if you're not, if you become anxious, that's a weakness on your part that you need to get through. Even no, saying I it sounds very is, harsh. Yeah, I, I don't think there is a point to that. I think there's a massive difference between what is right for a developing learning child and how things work in the workplace. I don't think we have to replicate how things work in the workplace in order that children learn best. Because actually the point of the education system is different to the point of work, right? So in the world of work, the point is to do the work. Ultimately, that's why people go to work. Yeah, They're not you know, people might talk about career development and learning all that, but really that's not the priority. The priority is to do that job. That's entirely different to school and education, where actually the priority is for those children to learn. There is no job that they're doing. You know, no one is going to care about the essays they produce or the their projects about the ancient Egyptians. You know, that is not, it, obviously they might care about it, but but there is no higher purpose in that there's no work purpose there the only purpose is for them to be learning and for them to be developing that is why they're there you know you see so I think I would actually question I would actually question that because yeah I I feel that school the priority and the point of school is to provide childcare Uh, and to get and for your children to pass qualifications yeah for me I I mean maybe my my children haven't gone to school but for me school wasn't about learning and the love of learning and oh all these lovely things it was very much it enabled both my parents to go to work. They knew where yeah. I was going to be. And I got qualifications at the end of it. That, to me, that's that feels pragmatic. like the point of school. <laughs> ah, that's very, that's really interesting. Because I think that might, might be the problem, the point of school, but I would argue that's not the point of education. Do you see? That's true. Yeah, And I, I think that the point of education, the reason that we have set up schools is because we wanted our children to become educated. And therefore, and there's a whole system, and I, agree that one of the functions I would say a function of school is to provide childcare now for many parents and a function of school is that it does the test results but I would argue that the tech the purpose of education should be about young people's learning and that I mean maybe it is maybe it isn't who knows but (laughs) but I guess that we have at some point decided particularly in this country that these things like these exams will be competitive that doesn't have to be like that. And not every country does it like this. So we could, there could be an end of school leaving exam, which was more like a driving test, which was more like you've reached a certain level of competence now. 
and you can reach that certain level of competence at different stages in your life. But once you've done that, it's kind of like a marker to employers that, you know, you can drive or you can read and write or you can do certain basic skills. And actually, we don't have to. That doesn't have to be competitive, because if you think about it, the thing about our education is we've got this massively diverse group of young people who are going through the education system. And those young people, you know, they are all going to go out into the adult world, no matter how they do at school. So we need to be thinking about an education system that prepares all of them for the adult world, not just the ones who do well in the exams. And currently what we've got is a system that kind of divides young people up into the winners and the losers. And a lot of them, 30% of them, fail at GCSE because that's the way we've designed the system for them. But they're still there, you know, and it's almost like we've got the system that's sorting everybody out into the successes and the failures. But then it's like, but what are we going to do? with these young people who've gone through the whole system and haven't got the, the thing that, as you're saying, that was what you thought the purpose of school was. You know, what does it mean if you go through the whole of school thinking the purpose is to get these all important exam results and then you don't get them at the end because the system is built so that some young people won't get them? I think that's a really profound problem for the school system and a profound problem for society because it's not a great way to spend your childhood doing something which then ends in failure and for you to start your adult life with failure. I haven't got what I need to get. Do you see what I mean? I think that's kind of inherently anxiety-provoking situation for everybody. And it's an, it's an inherently anxiety-provoking situation for parents too, because parents are kind of like, I've got to get my child up this rank. You know, I've got to get them somewhere. So they're going to do, everybody is kind of obsessed with where am I going to be in this hierarchy? Where's my child going to be ranked? And how can I, how can I increase their chances, really, of being higher up the ranking system and less likely to be judged as one of the failures? Because everybody thinks that that would be a catastrophe. It really is anxiety provoking. And, and I think, I suppose before we move on to how, as parents, we can support our children who maybe are feeling anxious, because inevitably, mm. you know, it, it's there in the system, even if we home educate. Unfortunately, when they reach a certain age, you have to, you know, you still have to to deal with assessments and, and yeah. qualifications. But before we move on to to how we can actually support our children, I wanted to ask you something about uh, something you mentioned at the start of the podcast about behavior modification and mm-hmm. how a lot of this uh, fear-based approach is to try to modify children's behavior. And yeah. I wonder, I got the impression from you that that you were saying, well, if you modify the behavior, you're not dealing with the underlying cause that's causing the behavior. But, I, but from yeah. a school perspective, obviously they have to deal with X amount of pupils in a classroom. And is there a sense yeah. that the only way you'll get children to modify their behavior in a big group is through some mm. sort of incentive, coerce, coercive kind of uh, role play. Do you feel that that's inevitable, that a teacher is going to have to engage with that? Or is there a route where you can sort of each individual teacher, even within this archaic kind of school system, has has a different approach that they could take? Well, there definitely are teachers who don't engage in public behaviour modification systems, for example. So I'm not an expert. I'm not a teacher. And I, but I know that I've talked to a lot of teachers. And it's interesting that teachers who use very structured, rigid behavioural strategies will often say there's no other option. And then there will often be teachers who pop up and say, but there is because we're doing things a bit differently. 
But I do think that there is an inherent problem that if you have a group of children and you are trying to make them do something which they don't want to do, and which perhaps is often developmentally inappropriate. So I would particularly say, for example, when you've got a class of five-year-olds who really want to play because that's what young children want to do, and the school agenda is that we need you to be learning to read at this point, you've got an inherent problem, basically. So, and then you are going to have, behave. I would see the behavioural issues that you have with these children as really a sign of that it's a sign that what is being offered to these children in this environment isn't actually appropriate for quite a lot of them and it's not something that they want to do it's they're being asked to do stuff which is not you know it's not what five-year-olds naturally need to do or are motivated to do and so the behavior modification comes in as a kind of level of control which basically obliterates that fact that's one of my big concerns about behavior modification is that if you control children hard enough if you are basically brutal enough with your control and your regime of punishments and rewards and all that kind of thing you stop them you stop their voice because in many ways i see children's behavior as their voice so you know people often say well they won't tell us what they want well that's because they're four or five or six they don't that isn't really the how they tell that some some do but most most young children are not particularly articulate when it comes to expressing their feelings what they do do is show us how they are through their behavior and if we then react to that by controlling it we've lost that source of feedback so for example if you have a very tricky class if i have had seen this before teachers have said this is a really difficult class i've got this really difficult class of five-year-olds what do i do so my first question with that would be what is what's going on here what is what's this environment like that they're in what are you trying to do with them that they're not doing what are the things what are they doing that you when you're saying they're really tricky is it that you actually have unrealistic expectations for this group of children and are those the problem where whereas once we locate the problem in the children's behavior we've, we've kind of narrowed the context we've stopped thinking we've stopped asking about all the other things like are they actually being asked to do something that they need to do? Are these actually, I think particularly in the context of COVID, actually, I've seen quite a few people asking about five and six-year-olds in the context of COVID. You know, I've got this really tricky class of six-year-olds that just won't sit down, they won't sit, they won't listen. And I'm thinking these are a group of children who probably didn't miss it. During COVID, they would have been at nursery and they probably either had very intermittent nursery or they didn't really go to nursery they may well have missed out on reception or if they did go to reception it will have been different you know they had and they had this time where they didn't have much contact with other people where they learned that other people were scary they weren't able to go out and do all the things they might have normally done meet up with other you know, there were so many things that happened to them in those two years of covid and they missed out and if, if i was thinking about it as a psychologist i'd be like can we not have a couple of extra years of play for all these kids who, who missed out on those play-based years. And instead they're being expected to just slot back in as if it had never happened. A lot of that as well was because they felt that a lot of these children had missed essential schooling. And yes. so they there was this desperate sense they had to sort of cram catch lots of up, schooling. Catch them up. Mm, exactly. Yes, and what they meant was cram lots of academic information into them. What they didn't mean was they've caught they've they've missed loads of play and that's what I really felt with children I felt that what happened during COVID is that they missed loads and loads and loads of play even 
when they weren't, you know, there's obviously going to nursery or not going to nursery, but, you know, lots of home educators didn't meet up in groups or the groups stopped. They couldn't meet up with their friends. That wasn't allowed, you know, and they missed out on seeing people's faces because of all the masks. They missed out on so much social emotional development. And we've had so little talking about that and so much talk about how they need to be getting up to speed. And I think it's a really... I don't think it's a useful way of seeing childhood that we need to catch them up to where they would have been. Because the other thing is, you know, this happened to all the children. It happened. It's like this massive event which happened to all the children. So what are they behind? They're not behind anybody. As a cohort, they are where they are. And so we didn't have to start talking about them being behind because they're not behind. They simply have been through something that children are other children did not go through you know that we ourselves didn't go through this the people who are now adults we didn't go through this when we were children so you it could have been a mindset of okay so this cohort they're going to need to do everything a bit differently they're going to need more time for playing they're going to need everything to be a bit slower I don't really see why we couldn't have done that you know rather than say we've got to squash you back into the mold as quick as we can Interestingly, I think we're seeing a certain element of that flexibility in higher education because Mm -hmm. somebody came on a Facebook group, a home education Facebook group a couple of days ago and said that the Scottish universities, for example, have have really changed their admission criteria for the next couple of years because, of course, the numbers are down. They need to get bums on seats, but uh, they've now they're now sort of doing away with a lot of the requirements that they previously wanted and are making it a much broader sense of who are you as a person and and, wow. and that yes isn't that nice yeah. <laughs> it, makes, yeah. it makes me feel like maybe this could be just like in so yeah. many ways the pandemic has been a catalyst for really good things that maybe yeah. I, I certainly know that a lot of teachers I did a podcast on this recently a lot of teachers have come through the pandemic and are now really questioning the career really questioning how the school system works and whether they really need to be there every single day delivering these (laughs) classes can some of this stuff be done online how much of this is warehousing of children and how much of it is education and so there are these questions being asked but of course it's such a slow process to change the education system but obviously there's an element that the pandemic brought about some positive things but from um from a negative perspective do you think that there's a difference between the anxiety that has been provoked in children because of covid and the mm. anxiety that's been provoked in children by the education system i think the two have come together because i think i think what happened with covid i mean covid is another example i guess of deliberate anxiety being used i mean you know in order to keep people to, to, to do something like lockdown, you have to talk about bad things that could happen. And yeah, I mean, that's that, been made clear by the government that that was, yeah. that was a policy. Mm. Exactly. And, and I think for children at a really formative stage in their lives, the kind of the ideas of what could happen and why we all had to stay at home and why you had to stand two metres away from everybody else and all that kind of thing, that will have felt much more significant than it did to adults who had had a very long experience of life not being like that. So for children, that's been a much bigger part of their lives. You know, if you're six, two years of your life was during pandemic when there was lockdowns. And so that's a lot of your life. And I remember my, I I remember some of the younger children I knew at the time during that, having no memory of life before COVID. So in fact, if you're six and you know the pandemic was between when you were three and four and five, you won't have memories of before that. So it feels like that's normal. So even as adults, 
I mean, I yeah. don't know about you, but even now, sometimes I go into shops and I reach for my mask in my pocket <laughs> and I'm automatic. sort of 48. Yes. So I've yes. had a lot of years of not doing this. So obviously if you're safe 13, 14, even it would, it would feel very strange really now. This year. Yeah, exactly. You know, I remember my nephews who were two or three during the time of the pandemic and they would play at hand sanitizing when they went into a shop, you know, they, it was like, <laughs> it was like the thing they did that whoosh, what do you have? And it was like, oh gosh, that's for them. That's just part of what people do when they go into a shop. You do hand sanitizing, and the same with masks. Actually, they have little toy masks for their teddy bears and things. So to put the mask on, it's like, wow, this whole sort of it, for them. That's what's happening. Um, was the yeah. anxiety then provoked by the change from what had then become their normality? to then what we consider to be normality, normality. post-pandemic or was there an anxiety inherent within the pandemic that they that they picked up on do you think I think I think there was a, I think there was a big anxiety inherent in the pandemic but we cannot do these things I think you know that that although they that we do these things to make us feel safe we stay at home and there was there was a big message that but you stay at home to keep yourself safe and to keep other people safe you wear a mask to keep yourself safe and to keep other people safe. So there was a strong message that we're doing these things to keep ourselves safe. But I think also for some children, I think it was a real shattering of the way that they were forming their view of the world. Because so as young, when children grow, when they're young, for them, their parents seem all powerful. Yeah, they think of their parents as the people who can sort everything out. You know, they expect that their parents will be able to make things okay. And I think that, you know, that's something as you grow up, you start to realise can't be the case all the time. But COVID was like this kind of rude moment of awakening for children where it was like, my parents can't make this okay, but also my parents aren't all powerful because actually the government has told us that we have to stay at home and my parents can't do anything about that. You know, they can't make it okay for me to go and see my grandmother or they can't open up the soft play, which has closed down now. You know, it's, I think there was a real, probably a real shock for lots of children. And it did, I think it did shatter some of their kind of the way that their, their understanding of the world develops because they, their safety at that age is very much based on my parents are the people who make things safe. They seem like these all powerful figures and they've lost that. And I think that, I think that was quite significant. But then I agree that I think the problem then, it's, it was kind of like, right, now it's all over, back to everything, no masks, nothing, no restrictions. And now you're meant to think that that's safe. Having had a couple of years of being told it's not safe to do all these things. So I think that I can understand why for many children that would just not make sense. You know, how does that, why, how does that work? Why does that work? And suddenly this is the big safe thing to do. And before that was the safe thing to do. I wonder if an element of this has provoked something that I've heard sort of just anecdotally that the that there's a generation of children coming through who are like 14, 15, who are very, very, for want of a better phrase, badly behaved in school. And now I hear this. I'm mm -hmm. hearing this a lot from because I, I meet parents. Um, my, my daughter goes to a class of schooled children and home educated children. So I so yeah. joyfully I get to meet all sorts of parents now. And yeah. a lot of them are telling me that. There's a real increase in in negative behaviour, whatever you want to call yeah. it, in in secondary school at the moment, and a lot of yeah. teachers have told me the same thing. And I wonder yeah. if there's an element of 
a, a repercussion of this sense that actually nobody's in control or certainly the people who <laughs> you thought were in control aren't in control. Yeah. And because it reminds me a little bit of my parents' generation who went through the Cuban Missile Crisis mm. and that sense that everything was spiraling out of control, that any day everyone could die. And yeah. they became a very rebellious generation. You know, obviously a yeah. lot of revolution yeah. came from that generation. And I wonder whether a similar thing is happening to mm. our, I'm not mm. sure what they're called, Gen Z, I think, who who are yeah, this, young people. Yeah, who, who are really who are really sort of thinking, do you know what? No one's in charge. No one's yeah. really able to control anything. It's like an existential crisis they're having, and that's causing this kind of negative behaviour. What do you think? Mm, that's a really interesting. I wonder. I mean, I don't know, but I think one of the things that I see is that during the pandemic, when the young when school stopped and it was like now you've got to stay at home, I think young people did have a lifting. They had a weird thing because there was a bigger on on a macro level there was more control right macro level you know you can't write you're not meant to go out of your house it's all that kind of thing but on a minor on a micro level they had more control over their daily life than they had had and I think there's a process that goes on when you go to school where you gradually get sort of acculturated is that the right word into you know, oh, indoctrinated isn't quite the right word but it's like you get used to it basically you start you know small children go into school and they get used to the level of control that happens at school and I think that's one of the reasons why it can be quite hard for children who haven't started at school at the beginning to go in later because they see all the levels of control and they're like, hang on a minute, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to being, you know, not being able to go to the toilet when I want to go to the toilet or not being able to get a drink when I want to get a drink or all those things. And I think that we took children out of their school environment and they were all like, oh, actually, <laughs> I can do these things for myself. I don't have to put up with being controlled all the time. And then we just stuck them back in again. And the way that many schools respond to disruptive behavior is by more control stricter control so therefore there's this sort of real clash between young people who are like but actually you know it doesn't always have to be like this I do you have a life when I can choose these things for myself and schools who are going no it's control now and the more you control young people like that particularly with teenagers the more you get that kickback the more they that say no I'm not going to let you control me and that certainly would go to explain why there has been such an increase in home educated children since the pandemic, because I'm guessing the children themselves are much more vocally saying, I hate this. I don't yeah. want to do this. Why am I going to school every day? Because they've seen that there's they've an alternative. That yes, exactly. The, mm. whole, the, the kind of social contract, which was you must go to school. School is compulsory for everyone, was actually broken the moment they said schools are closing next week. And, you know, out, that was. It's, it's almost I think we've almost forgotten now already just how enormously significant that was that countries all around the world were closing schools almost saying you can't go to school that just had not happened before you know that wasn't something that in our living memory we could even imagine happening that schools are closed and they're going to be closed for weeks like we were in France at the time and it's like they closed and no one knew when they were going to open again there was no end to this schools are closed thing so I think it was like and, you know, most children are told, you must go to school, you must always go to school, it's the law. And then it turned out the government could close the schools. <laughs> so it's like they broke that there. But I also think you're right that um, lots of families saw that actually they didn't realise how much their children disliked school until their children were out of school. Because then they saw how different they were when they weren't going. And I've talked to loads of families who said we were really happy during lockdown. There was no pressure 
to go to school. There was no pressure to do anything. We could poddle along and we were happy, you know, we just, it was actually a really relaxed time and everybody seemed more relaxed. And I think that was a moment for lots of young people and their parents where they were like, actually, you know what, maybe we don't have to. Maybe this doesn't have to be how we spend our childhoods and our adolescence, just kind of doing this thing that we don't enjoy. So do you think in a weird way that during COVID for a lot of children, whilst there was that perhaps underlying trauma of what was happening mm. around them, there was also a release from a, the day-to-day anxiety of being in school and that, that that's Definitely. what the, the parents were then responding to and then they put their child back in and, and the anxiety yeah. levels actually went higher than they were pre-COVID because obviously they, they now had this alternative. It's like if you're... Mm. You, you sort of get worn down by things and you just accept that this is your life. And then it's like a glimmer of hope and then it's shut on you again. So, so okay, so, yeah. so if we take that as our scenario, and I think I do see a lot of evidence of this from home educating, new home educating parents who say, I've just pulled my child out. You know, they hate school or they find school very difficult or they're not, they're not coping with school. So you're yeah. at home now with your child and you just brought them out. They're going to be reasonably traumatized, I would think, or have high levels of anxiety so what would your advice be to sort of new home educating parents who who may want to support their child with this kind of underlying anxiety that they've inherited from their education so I think time there's nothing like having some time I think that um you take them out they come out and then obviously everybody's going to be anxious about that decision often and sometimes there can be a kind of feeling like we've got to prove that you know, we're going to be okay out of school and therefore we've got to do more. We've got to do get, you know, we've got to tickle the boxes and we've got to do, get this and this. And I think you just need some time to let everybody unwind from what's gone on before. And I think you need to, parents need to actively work to sort of go, go against the pressured, the pressured model. Because I talked to quite a lot of parents who say, you know, my child's come out of school, it's often young teenagers that they're talking about. But they think that they're a failure. They think that they've got to keep up with their peers because otherwise they'll have no life. And I think you have to really actively go against that for young people. You really have to be actively saying, you know what, that is one way of learning and that actually we don't have to do it like that. You know, at school, lots of young people do their GCSEs at 16, but you don't have to do it then. But you have to really explicitly give them those messages because they've been explicitly given the other messages they've been explicitly told that if you're not at school you'll be a failure for example or if you don't do this you'll never succeed so we have to like actively work to give them a different narrative it actually reminds reminds me a little bit about people coming out uh women in particular coming out of abusive relationships where Mm -hmm. they can have these narratives and they can say these narratives that are things like i'm useless i'll never be able to get a job you know i don't have any friends you know you know i'm just a failure and and of course these are narratives that they've actually inherited or learned from the abusive partner and so you hear them saying it, but you wouldn't let them carry on saying it. You'd say, no, no, that's, you know, yeah. this is just something that you've been indoctrinated into. Learned. And I think it's a bit the same with, with children when they mm. leave the school system. They can come and and they. I often have uh, parents on the group saying, well, they, they're approaching me for work. They want structure. They want they yeah. want sort of the school thing. Yeah. And it's like, well, this do. because that's, yeah. That's, that's what they know. know. And that's, that's what their they, traumatic they... comfort zone, right? Yeah. Exactly. And that's how they've learned to feel good about themselves, too. They've learned that the way to feel good about themselves is you do the work and then someone gives you a tick or says good work. And that's your validation. Um, And what I usually say to parents if their children are like that is I say, see if you can take if you, you know, if they're saying I really, really want to do this, then get the stuff. But but don't 
don't buy into the kind of way of doing it with school where you're grading them, that kind of thing. Ask them to do those things. So I've, I have talked to quite a few parents who say my children are completely obsessed with stickers, for example. You know, they really, really want the sticker to say they, the smiley face or whatever it is. And I usually say, so buy lots of stickers and let them give themselves stickers. You know, so it's basically you're saying back to them, yes, that's fine. If you want to do worksheets or fine, we'll get them. You can do them as you want to. You can do this. You don't have to do it. You can. And I, and I think that handing back of the responsibility is a really key part of coming out of school, but also them seeing that I can give myself a sticker if I want to, and I can give myself 10 stickers if I want to. And I'm not, that isn't being kind of used to control me in the same way anymore. It's that sense as well that not only are you handing them back responsibility, but also power, right? I mean, mm-hmm. with, with responsibility comes power and vice versa. And, and it's this mm-hmm. sense that they're now being empowered to say, do you know what, if I want to give myself 50 smiley stickers, I'm going to damn well do it because I'm yeah. very pleased with my writing today. Or exactly. Something. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly it. And you want, so then they're sort of thinking, yeah, I can use these things, but they're not being, they're not being used to control me. But I also think the other thing, parents when they ask me what to do when they just come out is that you need to re you need to kind of rebuild your relationship with your child so that it doesn't include school anymore because most well all parents when you've had a child going to school a lot of your relationship with your child will have been about supporting them to be at school so you know you just have to conform to things like getting them there in the mornings and making sure that their hair is brushed and their uniform is clean and they've got their PE kit and all of that kind of stuff and if your child has struggled in school at all then even more of your relationship will probably have been centered around trying to help them get on okay at school maybe helping them with their homework maybe nagging them about their homework you know maybe trying to set up things for them so that things are better a lot of your relationship with them is actually about helping them with school so actually some of that anxiety-based response that they were getting from school may actually have also been replicated inadvertently by the parent who was also also very anxious Anxious about about school yeah Yeah. so actually it became this 24-hour a day thing Mm. absolutely and it can really get into the relationship between a parent and child that the parent the child knows that because schools do this on purpose schools will say to parents you know you've got to back us up basically it's not helpful for you to take the child's side you need to support the school so if the child's struggling with school and they're saying oh I really don't don't like this teacher and the parent feels that they have to say well you know the teacher really you know then the teacher the parent becomes associated with school and so the child, you, what you, the parent needs to do is get back there with the child or get back to the relationship that you had when they were younger, when it's not about school and when it's actually more about let's do the things that you enjoy together and join them in doing the things they enjoy, helping them do more of the things they enjoyed as opposed to trying to help them be okay at school. It's quite a different role, I think. It is, and I think... I think when it comes to building the relationship, that's something that within home education, I'm always so thankful for is that you, the relationship between parent and child is a different one and it's center stage. And depending on how you do it, and we actually did a podcast on all the different approaches to home education and we came up with 26, which is a huge amount, but actually I'm sure we missed lots. (laughs) But, um, you know, there are so many different ways of doing it, but in every single one, there is more of a sense that you have this sharing, shared sort of balanced relationship. And and Mm -hmm. that comes through in home education very much. 
So one question I have for you is, if um, if a child has been taken out of school because they're perhaps not getting on with the other, with their peers, maybe there's bullying mm-hmm. or any kind of harassment or anything like that. Now, obviously, their anxiety is going to be quite different. So is yeah. it do you need a different approach if you're a parent to deal with that kind of thing? Is there different things you should be doing or, or do some of those those things you suggested about making sure that you give your child time going against that kind of pressured school model, giving giving them back their power and self-motivation and, and rebuilding your relationship? Do they still stand or are there other things that you would also add in if they've been having difficulty with their peers? I think they definitely still stand. There is something about helping them understand what might have gone wrong and also ideally seeing if you can help them make new connections with different people. Whether, I mean, for some children, for some children that can be peers, but for other children, actually peers are a bit too much to manage and it can work better if it's other adults or even other Teenage, depending on the age of the child, you know, if they're a younger child, actually teenagers can be great because they have a different, a more scaffolded relationship. Or if they're a teenager, young adults can be great. So, you know, a few years ahead where enough that they're not quite relating as peers, but therefore that the young person can have more, uh, more positive relationships, basically. I think you sometimes you have to think more actively about how can I help them have new experiences, relationships, because otherwise what can happen, I think particularly actually, it's interesting, we talked about screens last time, but I think particularly with older kids with social media and the way that you can actually leave school and leave a, a peer group that's been problematic, but you don't actually leave them because they're still there on your phone. Or they're still there in your WhatsApp group, or you're still actually effectively still in that negative peer group. So I think that parents at that point need to think quite actively about how can I help them get out of this peer group as well. Because I've talked to parents who'll be like, well, we stopped going to school, but they're still being treated in the same way on their phone, which is, I mean, they can't recover in that case. How are they going to be less anxious if they're still effectively being bullied? via their phone so I think there's something about talking to them as well and saying that this is not okay this behavior it's not about you it's there's nothing wrong with you but this is not okay what they're doing to you and then it's okay for you to say we're going to stop that that can be very difficult can't it for really difficult for parents because the children invariably say well you know all my friends are on this group and some of them yeah. like if I if I block some of them or if I leave the group then I'm cutting off my or what you know would yeah. you sort of say well look just just cut cut them all off and start new ones or like it's awkward isn't it it's difficult as a parent because you you kind of want to foster the good relationship so you have to do a certain amount of gatekeeping but how much do you do and how do you do it really 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 hard and I would I think I always say to parents that if you can try to build up the good that's a better thing than trying to cut off the bad as initially you know, so if you can try and actively pursue new relationships, find places where they're going to be able to establish new relationships in person, ideally, rather than necessarily just online. If the more you can build that up, the better you'll be in a position to be able to talk to them about what relationships are helping them and what aren't helping them. Because, you know, you can't particularly as they get older, you can't just go in there and start banning things because it won't work. They will they will get find ways around it. And what you will do is you as a parent will lose your power 
because they will stop telling you about it. So if they're telling you about stuff, that is really helpful as a parent. So it needs to be about thinking about how can you empower them to think, okay, are these relationships that are making me happy or not? Are these people that I feel better after interacting with or do they make me feel worse? And, that, and sort of bringing that out into the open, you know, so it's explicitly talking with them about what's happening and how it makes them feel. And then talking with them about ways that they might be able to get out of it if they if they, if that's often getting out of it is a problem as well because said doing something like blocking other people is often experienced as a really really violent thing to do actually it's, it feels very brutal and it can be really difficult for young people to do that and I think that's you know completely understandable so it might be about thinking with them about ways that they could gradually step away whether there are ways they can gradually distance themselves rather than it being a kind of sad you know a strong thing but actually the other thing that sometimes does help is empowering the young person to say that their parents are stop, are saying that they can cannot do this anymore. Because even if you're not actually saying that, that can be a way of the young person having a kind of backup. And they're saying, sorry, this isn't about you, not about me, but my mother says I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so, you know, so I think it's a, it has to be an ongoing conversation. I don't think there can ever just be a, this is the wrong thing to do. But I think we have to be helping them think about what are the relationships? What's a healthy relationship look like? And is this a healthy relationship or not? And if they've had lots of peer problems at school, the odds are they weren't healthy relationships and that they're not going to improve. You know, they're not going to improve now from how they were before. Is there, um, is there a danger that if they've had this history of difficult relationships with their peers and that they're quite traumatised and have high anxiety, that they will actually carry a lot of this into their new friendships and that, and that sort of that will then make those friendships difficult and that then becomes this sort of confirmation bias that actually they're the problem. It, it and is me, in, yeah. Yeah, and in that circumstance, is there an argument for sort of having a certain period of time where you just kind of don't expose them to their peers or is that is that not something you would recommend I that's a tricky one I don't really know I think it depends on the peers and it depends on the context because I think if you can find places for them to interact with their peers where it's about an activity or about doing something together but doesn't have that kind of pressure about necessarily much chatting that can be useful. It's almost like, you know, when we talk about with young children about parallel play, when they're playing beside each other, but not necessarily interacting. I sometimes think that there can be a stage with teenagers as well, where actually parallel activities can be have its place, you know, that you're going to do something like, I don't know, singing or something where actually there's not, not that much interaction, but you are there with other people. I think that can be really helpful. But again, like I was talking about, I think Finding those relationships with just slightly older young people or young people who you know there's not going to be that bullying dynamic with because, yeah, because they're because there is that age gap or because they're you're, you're talking to them in a different role, you know, like it's just I think if you can do that, you're building up that young person's capacity to have relationships. But outside of school, there isn't the same expectation that you have to be friends with your same age group anymore. I think when people come out of school, you know, we're all, I remember it. It's weird when I think back to it at school, how everybody was just kind of ranked in year groups. It would just seem really almost impossible that you would be friends with someone who was in the year above or the year below, even if actually you were only a couple of months older or younger than that person because of the way the year groups were, were split. But it just seemed like by being in a different year, they were 
they were totally on a different level. And of course, out of school, that doesn't have to be the case. So you can really widen the pe- the relationships that they have and the people that they should be spending their time, they can spend their time with. So from a home educating point of view, mm. you could be looking at things like volunteering or, mm. you know, sort of things at the weekends, maybe, where which involve yeah. older children or possibly younger children, but ju- just a different dynamic. Absolutely. Because I know that... I know that a lot of home educating parents of teenagers do struggle to find meetups. They struggle to find regular meetups. And if they find them, they're maybe not great. And then they think, oh, no, I'm going to have to keep at it because it's the only one available, you know. Yeah. Yes, it's hard. It's hard. But I think, you know, I do think it's a kind of it's a, a slight artifact of school that we have this really strong obsession with them having to be in there in that strong, in that quite tight age group. If you think back to how we were for most of human existence, I don't think we would have had this, you know, 30 kids at the same age as you. just wouldn't have been like that. It's natural for young people to be in mixed age groups. And I think everything is a relationship. So whatever that young person is capable of doing at the time, if they're, if they're able to volunteer and actually they're chatting to older adults when they're volunteering, that's another kind of relationship. All of this stuff is useful. And yeah, I mean, the, the the teenage meetups. Absolutely, I I hear people with that. It's a it's a really tricky one. But I think not. It's not the right thing for every young person at, at every time to have a group of, of of the same age. And I think it's. But it is important for them to have connections. Any connections that they can make is good. Really. Positive. And does the same go for online? You know, so positive online connections. So, the, do they have the same, in your opinion, if they're positive and they're online, even if they never meet them, do do mm. they have that that same? You know, is that okay? Is that enough? Do you think? I think it depends on the young person. For some young people, I think that can be enough. I think it's nice if they have the balance of in person as well, because I think there is something different about in person to online. It just feels really different. And if you think about young people. They're learning these skills. They're developing these skills. And so I think there is something about them needing to develop the skills to be with other people in person, as well as developing the skills to be with other people online. And this is a generation that's going to have had more experience of being online because of COVID as well. But again, I don't think it necessarily has to be the same age group or even has to be the same kind of intensity. You know, maybe they have really intense playing sessions online with their peers and actually, when they meet people in person, it's not like that at all. It might be much more casual or it might be hanging out with people or it might be going, even going to see your relatives or going to, I don't know, volunteer at the local charity shop or, you know, just sort of things where you're getting out around other people. I think that is important, but I don't think it has to be the same. And I don't think one is lesser, really. I think it's just that they're both important. One thing you mentioned um, uh, when I asked you about whether it's different to deal with children who have had anxiety because of their relationship with their peers at school. And you said that you think it's important that you work through it and you talk through it with them. Do you think that that stands for all circumstances? So do you, because I think that sometimes as parents, we sort of, we maybe take our child out and we think, okay, we've done that now. Like, let's all just get over it. And like, I don't want to think about it. I don't want them, you know, they get upset if, if we talk about it. Do you think that that's an appropriate response sometimes just to move on from it and kind of compartmentalize it off? Or do you think it's always helpful to talk these things through? I think if you can, at some stage, it's good to talk these things through. 
And I how do you know what's a good stage and what's a bad well, stage? Well, it's a dance, isn't it? Parenting is a dance. You're all, I mean, I'm a trauma therapist. And one of the things that I do with children is tell stories with them. When I think about what I've done with my own children, I feel like I tell them stories a lot of the time about not, not real stories, not big stories, but stories about just, you know, this, this is what happened. We were doing this, then this happened, and then everybody's reactions were this. So just kind of, I, I think of it as like kind of almost explaining the, the arc to them of what happened. You know, everybody got really angry about this, and then we all felt a bit better, and then we stopped arguing, and now we're okay. So you kind of retell what happened yes, to them. Yes, exactly. Particularly around emotions. So you're, and you're, so you're kind of, I think of it like you're sort of joining up the dots for them because often for them it won't feel like there was much logic there. It won't feel like they don't really know why things have happened. And of course, you don't necessarily know why things have happened as well. You're you're giving your experience. But I think it's really important for parents to show that they're giving children permission to talk about these things because children often take their cues from parents. So if children, particularly if things have gone wrong, things have been badly wrong at school, then children may well feel that it's upsetting to their parents to talk about what happened as well as of themselves getting upset. And so they also feel it's better just not to talk about it. And so these things can, can be just things in the family which are never, ever talked about because nobody wants to upset anybody else. And I actually do work with families sometimes and I'll see them and something terrible will have happened. It'll be four years later, no one will have ever talked about it at all. And then really my job as the therapist is to go back and talk about it but to go back and help everybody talk about it and I think there is something really important about parents giving that saying this is something that we can talk about in our family even though it upsets us you know it's okay because those if if it upsets them every time you talk about something that upset is there it's not like you're bringing it up you know it, it's there and I, what I say to children is if we think about the upset here now, we can help ourselves understand what happened. Whereas otherwise, you're kind of vulnerable to it always happening at some point. You know, something might happen to remind you and you might get really upset. So, I mean, I'm thinking about things like car accidents. You know, if we have children who don't, who don't have had a terrible accident and they don't want to talk about it and they're avoiding cars and everything's fine because they're avoiding it all. But the problem is something might happen, like they might have to go to hospital and then they'll be in the car and then they'll feel terrible. So how about if instead we think about it now and then if something happens, then you're not going to have to, well, you won't feel so terrible. What happens then if the child says, I don't want to talk about it? Like, I just don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. You know, as a parent, is it your job to push? Is it your job to bring in a professional? Is it your job to wait? Like, I know you say it's a dance, Mm. but it's a dance where we don't know the rules. Yes, I agree. Are there any rules? <laughs> I think I think it's fine if the child says, I don't want to talk about it, and I'd respect what the child says, but I wouldn't take that as a definitive, we are never going to talk about it. So I would say something like, I think it's important for us to talk about it, but we don't have to do it now. So I would keep opening that door, basically. You see what I mean? So it's just like, I think one of the things I often talk about with parents is drip feeding, that when children have a really strong anxiety response to something their automatic response when you bring something up is going to be no i'm not going to do it okay so you get that's just straight away no so that that no is an automatic no not a genuine no what i mean by that is the child hasn't been able to think about the actual situation and decide on a no they've just gone that feels awful no i can't do it 
So in that case, when you've got someone who's who's in a lot of giving you a lot of automatic no's, then really the task of the parent is how can we just start to bring down that anxiety a bit so that you can genuinely think about it and perhaps say no, but you're actually thinking about it. So it's a different thing from I'm not going to talk about that because that is too upsetting for me. And you know what? I don't really want to talk about that anymore because we've talked about it loads of times and it's boring. You see what I mean? So one's like an automatic anxiety driven no, and the other is like a no, a real no. <laughs> so the way that you deal with the automatic no's is you drip feed. So you you expect that they're going to say automatic no every time. You predict it to yourself. So you say, you know, this happened, it was really upsetting. Don't want to talk about it. Okay, fine. And then you and then you say, and then, or even sometimes you could do things like you can talk about it to somebody else in their hearing when they're on their device or something, knowing that it's still there, you know, you're you're talking about it effectively. So you take the pressure off. So you might want you might say, This has happened to us, I found this really upsetting. And I often say to parents, if the child won't talk about something, talk about your own story, but not obviously in an age appropriate way. But, you know, it could be it just a tiny little one. It could be something like, you know, we went to the park and this dog came up and the child got really scared. And, you know, you all left really quickly because they're scared of dogs. But the, so the parent could tell their own story about that. The parent can say, oh, we went to the park and the dog came up and my heart started beating really fast and I felt really anxious, you know, and I actually really wanted to leave. And so did the child. So we went. We went. So that's the parent's story. But they're telling the child's story as well. Is there an element? I do. I I wonder if there's an element where if you tell your your emotional response to what happened, you know, in this drip feeding way, whether that would increase the child's anxiety thinking, oh, look, it's such a big deal for her. I don't want to talk about it because it will make her worse. And if I don't talk about it, then maybe she'll stop talking about it. It's really it's difficult to know whether how much you should put yourself in and how much it affected you into the story as a parent. I think it's really important to model for children that we have emotions too, and that we we know that our emotions come get bigger and then they get smaller again. So when we're telling a story to a child, or you always have basically you have to have three parts: the beginning where things were okay, the middle when things got difficult, and the end when things are okay again. It's like so, the the hero's story, isn't it? The classic sort yeah, of Greek you have, Greek art, and you yeah. have to have that end. Yes. So what you don't want to be telling the child is story after story if I go to these places and I get really anxious I go to this place and it's really awful everything needs to have that arc to it because what you're showing them is I have emotions too I have these feelings too they feel frightening for a bit and then they subside again and that's a really important message for children to get about their emotions because actually if you're in a family where you don't talk very, very much about their emotions children don't know they don't know that everybody else has feelings. You know, it can feel to children like they have these terrible big feelings and everybody else doesn't because all they see is the faces and they don't see, particularly if adults are being very calm and controlled, they don't see that. So I think it's important for parents to make that visible in an age appropriate and in a kind of a reassuring way where you are telling this thing of, you know, I felt like this and now I feel better. And it can even be like, you know, I did I did something like I, I went and had a bath or I went and ran around the garden or something, and then I started to feel better. So you're even putting in the thing of I could do something when I feel like this that helps me feel better. 
I think that I don't see that making children more anxious because I think usually children are more anxious if they, they pick up on their parents' emotions anyway. Most children are really well tuned into their parents' emotions and actually they find it more anxiety-provoking when the parent is denying having the feelings, but the child knows they've got them. You know, so if the parent's like, it's all fine, I'm absolutely fine, and the child's like, hang on a minute, I'm getting these really strong feelings of anxiety here, that's that's more difficult. So I just say to parents, make it explicit, obviously in an age-appropriate way and obviously not in a way that's overwhelmed them. And you're, as a parent, you know that best. You know best what your child can manage and what they can cope with. I think there's an idea sometimes amongst parents, but also just people in general, that if you don't talk about big emotions, that they're not there. <laughs> yeah, they'll go away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That no one's really having them if you don't talk about yeah. them. But obviously yeah, no, the reality I, is that everyone's having them very quietly. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a cultural thing too. I think English people are very much about let's keep our emotions under wraps and not talk about our emotions or deny our emotions. And we think that that's a healthy way to go about things. And then, and then, as you say, it's like, like the children, because what do the children see? Do the children see that actually nobody else has emotions at all? And what conclusion do they draw from that? That I've got these really massive emotions. And I mean, a lot of how we talk to children can sometimes be telling them that their emotional reactions are wrong as well. So, you know, for children, and I think there's something important about validating their emotional reactions whilst also saying that things will change, it will move on. So what I mean by that is it's a very common scenario where a child will be frightened of something, like the child says, I'm really scared of that, and the parent will say, there's nothing to be scared of. Or the parent will say, oh, you know, don't be silly. Or the the parent will try and chivvy them through. Yeah, Mm. exactly, sort of try and chivvy them through the fear. And I think if the parent can instead say, wow, that's really scary, without jumping in there with them which is the, the skill right because there's a there's a thing of say so say the child's scared of something the parent can say well that sounds really scary without saying oh my god that's terrible we've got to get out of here straight away do you see what i mean so there's something mm. about the parent being able to hear the child's feelings whilst also holding on to their basic adult thing that actually is okay you know that dog is okay it's not a dangerous dog i know you're scared of it it is scary but I think it is safe. And I think that holding those dual positions is what hopefully ultimately enables children to be able to grow into managing their emotions better. And I think one thing that I would sort of say to reassure parents who are wanting to do this, but find it difficult or, you know, isn't something that they're used to from their childhood is mm-hmm. that, I mean, I don't know if you find this, but I work with a lot of adults and they, I, I like, you know, sometimes I want them to identify emotions and I'll give them like an emotion wheel, which has like, you know, hundreds of emotions on. They can't name any. They name a couple of states like I'm a bit tired (laughs) or I'm a bit stressed, but they they can't name any emotions. And I think I think um, whilst it's hard to do this work with our children and our teenagers, what we're giving them is emotional literacy, which is is is. Yeah, I mean, it's so rewarding. I, like I say, it's, you know, otherwise people like me and Naomi are going to be working with adults in the next 20 years who are still going to be struggling to actually name one emotion that they're feeling. So. Yes, because what we've learned is push it down, pretend it's not there. Exactly. So that's super helpful. Thank you so much. I think I feel like we've we've really covered 
what are the elements of some of, of some of the anxieties that our children are feeling, whether it's COVID related or school related, peer related, and also some really good practical advice about how to approach it. So before we finish, you mentioned yeah. that you do trauma therapy. Is that something that our, any of our listeners can approach you about? I suspect you're quite busy, but maybe if there's anyone who can know that, I know. Okay, yeah. so no, no, no. Um, yes, I do. So let me say. So yes, I am a trauma therapist. So my training. Well, I am a special. I'm a clinical psychologist, and my specialist specialism is in trauma, and also autism, but particularly in trauma. Um, but at the moment, I'm not taking on new clients because I am so busy. But I do do webinars. I do do um, a webinars on how to help your child with anxiety, how to help your child with trauma. Um, so if people follow me on Facebook, um, Dr. Naomi Fisher on Facebook, then they will see those. And I do those on a monthly basis. And they are basically quite practical workshops for parents on what you can actually do to help your anxious teenager or your anxious child or your traumatized child. Fabulous. Well, that's, I didn't know you did that. That's very helpful. Uh, yeah. that's, well, that's it was great because time. I have t- so many people contacting me to say they want therapy and I can't manage it. There's too many people already. So I thought I'd try to do something which empowers parents to help their own children. That's fabulous. I think, I think anything that as parents equips us with tools that perhaps we weren't given as children or we didn't see our parents using or, or maybe we did, but we've forgotten them. I mean, who knows? So- Absolutely. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Anything where we're sort of given given these kind of tools and feel that you can feel so hopeless and helpless, I think, as a parent sometimes. And anything which makes us feel that we actually have a few tools and a bit of advice that from other people that have been there and that sort of know the drill can make us just feel Mm -hmm. a little bit, you know, that we have people around us. Because it can be particularly when you home educate can feel a bit isolating sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Naomi. It's lovely, been lovely having you on again. And hopefully we will get to chat again in the future. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.